within the four walls of a company and everyone's talking about the same thing, everyone's mind kind of goes in the one direction and you kind of are almost engineered to want something because everybody in the same pack wants the same thing. Okay. Do you like edit it at the end? Is that how, how does it work? Or you just go start to finish? I go start time? to finish. Fair enough. Laughter and all. Yeah. <laughs> but I'll cut off because sometimes it will be a running start. Yeah, like if you... I like now, recording I'm now. recording. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll cut like a lot of this off. Yeah, probably all of it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's start. Yeah, okay. Would you like to introduce yourself? Okay. Um... So my name's Ben Ryan. Uh, I'm 29 years young, about to turn 30 in a couple of weeks time. Um, finance professional. Uh, yeah, I'm very excited to be here and discuss my path uh, and, and my life growing up and how I've come to be sort of sitting in the chair here. Great. So how did you grow up? Um, pretty normal life that I would think. So grew up in the outer eastern suburbs of Melbourne, out in Ringwood. Um, Catholic family growing up, good Catholic boy. Um, went to primary school, secondary school, basically lived my entire life out in the Ringwood area. Didn't really need to venture into the city for anything or anything like that. Mum was at home most of my life. She looked after my brother and I. Um, and dad worked in finance in the city, probably didn't really have much of an appreciation around what he was doing for a good majority of my life. We just knew that he was working. Oh, I knew he worked in finance and I knew he worked in the city, um, but it kind of sort of ended there. It wasn't until I started, which we'll probably get into becoming more aware and going down that as a career path of my own. Um, that I think I truly understood what he did and still to this day, I'm probably a little bit ambiguous as to some of the stuff he did through his career. Um, but yeah, went to secondary school out at Aquinas College in, in Ringwood, um, was fortunate enough to be school captain in year 12. Um, and then from then on, I think even at that point, I was starting to formulate where I wanted to go career-wise. And I you know, then made my way into Monash Uni accounting and finance, uh, and then uh, was fortunate enough to land a grad role at uh, EY, one of the big accounting firms, where I spent seven and a half years across two different countries, three different teams, learned a lot, became a CA, met a lot of different people, um, and then more recently have moved into an investment role at a commercial real estate debt investor here in Melbourne, specializes in Australia and New Zealand. So that's probably a bit of my career path. Um, yeah, me as a person, very easygoing, <laughs> like to have a laugh and yeah, very excited to be here today. Great. That's just the whole podcast. You brought us to the present <laughs> with one question. Okay. How did you get interested in accounting and finance? Like why did you decide to study that? Um, I think, so going through school always used to be pretty clever. Um, things did come naturally, which was very fortunate. Um, and maths was definitely something that I was, I think I was, I wouldn't say I was definitely, definitely wasn't the best, but I was, I was definitely in the better group, um, when it came to maths and I really enjoyed the, sort of the logical nature of that. 
And it wasn't until I think it's in year 10 or 11 when you kind of get introduced to accounting and business principles um, at school. Um, And I really enjoyed, yeah, I think how logical it went, you know, the the language of business, um, obviously making money and all those sorts of things. It really sort of stirred, you know, a bit of an interest in me. Um, and yeah, I sort of, you know, it was almost like a duck to water. I really picked it up quite quickly and it was something that was interesting me at the time. And I was kind of like, I I knew I wasn't going to be a scientist or anything along those lines. This was something that I could see myself working in and it seemed to resonate with my skill set, uh, quite well. So that combined with, obviously, if you look at my childhood, as I said, dad worked in finance. I knew he was an accountant at some point. You know, he'd obviously provided for us as a family, and I was like, you know, this is an ex- you know a great way for me to get my foot in the door and go down that path as well. So, yeah, I think that was probably a good interlude into how I went down the path that I did. So this came about because I think you listened to Lola's episode. Yes, I think you, I did. Like, which is about her not, you know, her starting work working at McDonald's mm. and like just purely of her own back like buying a property at 24 without any help um and you and you like love the like or or was it about me yet talking about the barefoot investor or being something well i like barefoot sorry i i barefoot's definitely something that i've really enjoyed i've read the books love his newsletter it's a shame that he doesn't really go and do what he used to do around stock recommendations and stuff like that. I used to really love the analysis they used to put together. Um, but what I really liked about that was the pragmatic nature of it and that it wasn't this... Because I think finance, personal finance, you know, people driving fancy cars, living in amazing homes, you know, it can be scary and intimidating to a lot of people. And I've still got a lot of friends that I think have that not fear, but just unknown as to how you kind of get there. And there's all, you know, probably a lot of frustration in that element as well, which I really liked how the barefoot, you know, puts it in terms where it's not for your high roller walking down Collins street. It's more for people that are living their lives and they're not, they don't necessarily need to have that, you know, ultimate wealth, but they feel comfortable and they feel secure and that they're putting the right assets around them so that they can, you know, live a really comfortable life and, I think that's what we all kind of want is to live that comfortable life and have that financial security around us. And obviously, as you mentioned, Lola, buying a property at 24, it's an amazing effort and something, you know, already starting to build that compound wealth and, you know, giving someone some security around themselves. Mm. So Colin Street's where we're recording from now. And And I work on Colin Street. And you just saw a high roller, none other than (laughs) Mark Philippoussis (laughs) getting off the tramp. I do love my tennis, so I spotted him from a mile away. <laughs> um, okay. Yeah, but you kind of were talking about barefoot and then, and so we know each other because we lived together in London. Yeah. And had some great times in Krakow. Yeah. And Lithuania. And God, Morocco, so many places. Okay, yeah, I anyway, know, I've got a good list. But, um, <laughs> but I was like, oh yeah, this is something people are really interested in, which is exactly as you're saying, like demystifying. It's like, wait hang on, I don't understand how this works. Like, will I ever be able to have this? Or like, that's only certain people have access to this. Yeah. But it's actually like, if you follow these principles, yeah, you like, I love those principles. This is what I live by. So I think that's what is, will be really helpful Mm. to 
talk about, which is like, how do you get on top of this? But first I want to ask you, like, when did you become interested in money? Um, oh, that's a good question. Uh, I used to be really bad with money growing up. And even when I had my part-time job, I was not very responsible with it. You know, probably wasn't going the extra mile to get an extra shift. I kind of you used the bare minimum to just do whatever I wanted to do. Being this a young guy. School. Yeah, this was at school and like particularly even like year twelve, you know, I might make just enough money to get petrol or something like that. I wasn't super I need to be working to be making all this sort of money. It wasn't it, and I think that maybe that was even at that point where I was kind of like you know, this is a really frustrating and limiting way to be living. I know I wasn't paycheck to paycheck because I was living with my parents at the time, but the money I was accruing or earning was just, you know, barely enough for me to do anything that I kind of wanted to do. What was your job? Uh, I worked at Richie's uh, Super IGA out in North Ringwood, um, stacking shelves. Uh, and I was also on the intercom quite a bit, making the announcements around the store. You would have loved that. <laughs> Um, and I worked on the, re- I did a few, like even just going, I did a few retail jobs, which I think was really important growing up and, you know, giving me some skills that then fed into my now more professional role. But so I worked at Richie's, I worked at Bond's underwear, uh, in Doncaster shopping town, selling undies to whoever would buy them. I worked in a factory in sort of sweltering heat through the summer one time, packing school books for students. Um, I what else did I do? I mean, I used to just do odd, odd jobs, you know, days here and there at people's companies, just helping them with even things like printing, just to get a bit of extra cash. Um, but it was good to just get an understanding of kind of what was out there. I think the factory experience really soured any sort of manual labor. Uh, that was brutal, and I would never do that again. <laughs> and what was the motivation to get all these jobs? I think. By the time I sort of exited Richie's, which was my predominant job growing up, I worked there for about four years or something along those lines. But um, why did you get that job? Was that coming? That job I got parents? through. Uh, I got through a connection, which was my friend Pat O'Leary. His older sister was a ca- uh, ca- uh, cashier. Um, she'd been there for a few years and was like, I think they're looking for um, grocery boys. I, I don't quite know, but I'm pretty sure. I think I started when I was 15, whatever the minimum was. Like I was literally from that day, I think I was getting paid like eight fifty an hour. And you wanted a job or your parents were like, go get a job? Parents were pretty keen for me to start working. Not because they didn't want to pay for things. It was more they wanted me to get... Because when you're in school, it's such a different environment. Like school's so structured around, you know, you've got your classes... Um, you know, obviously you have your teachers and your friends and everything around it. The work environment is such a different place to be and you're not, you know, you do report into other people and stuff to that extent and you might not have, you know, the relationship that you have with a teacher, which is, you know, they do want to always or hopefully help you with things. Whereas you can come across bosses in the workplace that don't have that mentality. And it's a bit of a different different environment plus also the element of having to serve and work with customers i think we've all probably worked with difficult customers over the time so they wanted you to learn about the real world kind of thing yeah they were pretty keen for me to get exposure 
outside of just school. And I think that they told me well in advance that, that, you know, it's a great experience, even if you're not getting paid well, just getting into a different environment. Like you said, dealing with difficult customers, you know, those skills that I've learned when I was 15, you know, I, I still deal with, with clients when I'm working that, that for whatever reason might be having a bad day and using those skills is always important, I think. Do we need to do a disclaimer, by the way, that this is not professional financial advice? And <laughs> consult. A yeah, I think that's. I think that's a good little uh, interlude there. I, I'm more talking from personal experience. It's not something anyone should take literally. <laughs> okay, so, but you were kind of that. Maybe sounds like me. Like I always had these part-time jobs from fourteen nine months but I had no awareness of the money. Like the money, I don't know, the money, I don't have it anymore. It was spent, <laughs> but I can't tell you what it was spent on. Yeah. It was, so at what point did you start being aware of saving and your mindset around things? I think it probably coincided with a few things happening at once. Um, so once I finished year 12, I, as I said, started at Monash University doing a Bachelor of Commerce majoring in accounting and finance because I, as I said, I thought that was something that I would naturally fall into from a from my sort of knowledge base. Um, and I reckon it was around the same time as you introduced before that I did first come into contact with Barefoot Investor and really having an appreciation for, you know, getting on the front foot early. And, and I think when the, the label Barefoot Investor, some people think about, you know, shares and all that sort of stuff. And that's an important part of building wealth. I think we can all agree on that. But it's more around that I thought was particularly powerful was, you know, making sure that you have the right personal banking set up, you know, that you do have the right savings account, that you are earning an appropriate amount of return, albeit, you know, that period of cash rate was nowhere near where it is now. But, you know, that you were putting money in a particular way that was going to allow you to build that over time. And, you know, I'm not going to completely read talk through what the barefoot recommends but even little things around you know having a having a savings account that might actually be distanced from your actual transaction account you know things along those lines so you don't actually see the money what i think i was having trouble with before any of that was i was getting paid into the same account that was also my savings account so you know i'd go out have a night out with my friends my savings would then be gone because i had no distinguishing factor between, okay, that's money set aside. This is money that's being paid out now. Um, so, you know, once I started reading a bit more about that and, and sort of even, you know, he was, he was doing bits in the paper um, and hearing a bit more around how you should be structuring it, you know, I became a lot more aware that what I wanted to do and sort of needed to do was structure uh, the way I was paid and the way I was looking after my money into a much better format that was going to allow me to do things like buy a home or which I haven't done yet, but buy a home and, you know, save for holidays and do things like that. Because if I'd gone and kept going down the same path, you know, I would have never been able to probably move to the UK, which Delia alluded to. I would not have, you know, been able to have the financial backing that I needed to when I went over there. Cause I went over there for three months with no job. <laughs> so I needed to work Travel. my way throughout. Yeah. Like I actually quit EY and then they had to rehire me. So I went over there with nothing. It was kind of, I had to work it out. And even to the extent, obviously, once we moved in or I moved into the share house you were in, I had no accommodation lined up. It was, 
had an Airbnb for two nights and I think that might have been night one that I came and did the inspection and was like, I need to move in on Wednesday. And fortunately for me, it all worked out super well, but I could have been sent home in a week's time. <laughs> you like love the sofa. <laughs> I was looking for anything and it seemed to be a good vibe. So it's one of those ones um, at the time I was like a little bit, you know, you're jumping into something, you just don't know, but you know, that was a great experience. It's something I... I recommend to anyone to do. What? To live with me in London? <laughs> to live overseas. I do have a spare <laughs> room. So. <laughs> um, to live overseas. That was, uh, that was a big leap and something no one in my family would ever have done and was, I think, difficult to understand why I was doing that. Mm. Um, particularly, yeah, I think, I think that was just a fabric of my upbringing in my family's upbringing um you know that was a very left of field thing for someone to be doing and to be honest but i can see you about to jump in before that i hadn't even thought about that before i even started working at ey it wasn't something that had ever crossed my mind before but once i went into the organization you know a lot of people were either moving with ey or they were moving um after getting their qualification and i was like this is something i can definitely do now because i've got sort of an example ahead of me and it became super exciting bit of a change okay so backtracking a bit mm. you're at uni you come across we didn't actually explain what so barefoot investors this australian guy scott pape yeah um i'll contact him and see if he'll come on the podcast and yeah. just explain all this stuff himself but he's kind of written this book it's it's like I think it's the best-selling Australian book of all time. So yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. Really? Pretty much everyone's read it. Or at least I come across nowadays. And I recommend it to people. Just, mm. just, just gives you a bit of context. <laughs> um, now this sounds like just an ad. Applies. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But so you came across that in uni? Yes. How? Do you remember? Um, my auntie... Um, she had been across his work and sort of how he did things for a while before that. From memory, and I could be wrong, so definitely don't quote me. He used to do a piece, like an editorial in either The Age or The Herald Sun um, that, you know, with little bits of advice and things like that. And she used to read it and take it, you know, take it on a lot of that advice. And I think she might have mentioned it um, and I actually think the way I might have gotten his book was a Christmas present from my mum, which I think had indirectly come from my auntie. So, um, and it was just immediately compelling to you, like I should have a better system for my money. Yes, I should have awareness about this stuff. A hundred percent. You know, even I've read a number of finance books subsequent to that, and it's a lot, obviously, a lot more technical ones. You know, um, the Intelligent Investor one up on Wall Street, all that sort of stuff. That's very specific around investing, but this was such practical and good advice, like as I said, around how to get your, you know, even things, you know, when your salary comes in, how much should be going to this, how much should be going to that. You know, for I'd never had an emergency fund if I was to, you know, be made redundant or something like that. And, you know, that was the first thing, literally the first section, you should make sure that you've got, I can't remember now off the top of there, but three or four months, salary saved away if something like that was to happen so it gives you at least the ability to keep living your life it's not oh i've completely dropped the ball um so you like when i start work full time oh 
once I had a meaningful amount of money coming in, which was coincided really with when I started as a grad. So at uni, were you then like motivated to make money or you were just like, I'm studying for now and I'll get a good job when I finish? Probably the latter. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a funny story in itself. As I mentioned, I worked at EY for a number of years. I'd never heard of EY either. This is why I was saying before, like my dad worked in finance and now EY and the consulting firms and the big investment banks, I know all about that, but I had no, it wasn't something you necessarily spoke about at home. Um, it wasn't until first or second year uni at the end of a tutorial or a lecture or something, the presenter sort of got up and made a comment saying, just as an FYI to everyone, the big four accounting firm internship programs now opened, recommend everybody gives them a go. And I had to ask someone in the class, what are the big four accounting firms? Um, as in what are the names of them? So then, and then I obviously went online and applied for all of them and got interviewed by all of them and ended up at EY. Um, but that just kind of goes to show how my mindset had gone from being like almost like a complete novice to now I'm much more aware around that sort of stuff. But to answer your question, I think it was in uni. I was like, you know, I want to enjoy my time at university, get through all my classes. I did the internship, but it wasn't until after uni, I knew that I wanted to start working and that's probably when it coincided with, I need to be doing something better with my money than just spending it as much as it comes in, as quickly as it comes in. Yeah. You know, that was like me going to New York. It's funny because we're recording mm. from this building where all the investment banks are, but I had no <laughs> idea mm. what they were. And I was meeting someone at Merrill Lynch mm. and I called David Lynch. And I was like, dad, I'm meeting the founder of this company. <laughs> and he was like, you're an idiot. But I'd like never heard of no. like Goldman Sachs. Or, and then, but then I remember when I got my job at Credit Suisse and I was like so excited, like bold bracket, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, none of my friends from Melbourne have ever heard of. I remember Harriet, who yeah. we lived with, was like, oh, is that one of the American banks? And it's like, <laughs> Swiss, the keyword is Swiss. But like, I've still got, you know, EY for anyone who, you know, doesn't know is short or abbreviated for Ernst & Young. Um, but they officially changed the name. Yeah, they are. Well, audit is still going to be EY. But whatever. No, the but it's no called. longer called Ernst. Oh yeah, yeah. And we can I, I can see it from where we're currently sitting as well. Yeah, and that's um, where I worked in New York. But I still got friends that are like, pronounce it wrong, don't get it, say I work for somewhere else, things like that, which to me is strange. But a good cohort of my friends are not in professional services or in, you know, for lack of a better term, white collar jobs. They do different things, so I don't. And I don't expect them to know all of that sort of stuff. It's probably also why I'm friends with them. It's nice and refreshing to sometimes have people outside of the bubble. Yeah, it's so refreshing. Yeah. Because especially when I was at one point, yeah, like private, like, okay, yeah. I'm going to get a job at Blackstone or KKR or something. And like, I remember. It's like the be all end all. And then you talk to someone and they're like, what's Blackstone? Yeah. And it's so <laughs> refreshing because it's like, this is all, it's just, you can just get trapped in like egos. Yeah. Stuff. Within the four walls of a company and everyone's talking about the same thing, everyone's mind kind of goes in the one direction and you kind of are almost engineered to want something because everybody in the same pack wants the same thing. Um, I'm sure that every single person in Credit Suisse would have wanted to work at Blackstone, which is why it's in your mind. Being like, if I get this job at Blackstone, that's why I want to go there. Yeah. And I only wanted a job at Credit Suisse because in New York, mm. at EY, everyone just wanted to do investment banking. Yeah. So I was like, I want to 
do that thing to prove. And then when you're doing the thing, you're like, now everyone can see how yeah. clever I am. But it's like, no one cares. Everyone's just focused on themselves. Like, and that's, a, yeah. And that's, you know, even when you bring it back to Scott Pape, um, that's like his whole mindset behind it is that everyone runs their own race. And I, I can't remember what, it definitely was in one of your newsletters about that herd mentality and, you know, make, making sure that you're not, because I think everyone does get sucked in with this keeping up with the Joneses and I think you definitely could call it postcode povo or something like that. The people feel that because everyone that they're with, that they work with lives in a particular area, I need to live in that area often well above my means and it puts stress through all other parts of your life when if someone was to move, I don't know, 20 minutes away, a much more affordable option, you would probably feel a lot more secure in where you are. But that's a big challenge because no one wants to go into work and say, oh, I've actually bought a home on the wrong side of town, despite it being cheaper and I live a better life in many other areas. You don't want to be given that sort of, ugh, from someone at work. But I feel like that's really, that's like a Melbourne thing, mm. probably Sydney thing, also like a, but Sydney, I think there's more nice areas. Mm. But and then also like a New York thing. It's New York so judgmental. Like so much your identity is where you live. Yeah. Like you say with pride, I live in the West Village. Like I, you know. It's yeah. Like then people see anyway. But London, I isn't like that. Yeah. Oh, you're oh, right. You still, it's like oh, okay. There are still stereotypes, but you can. You have no idea because the it's so mixed. Yeah, and there are council flats in every part of the city. So yeah, it's like, I agree with that. I think that's a great. It was definitely less. Well, we were obviously renting, like, I, and I was just happy to have a place. But um, in a five, <laughs> what a house! Yeah, I remember often telling people at work about I live in a five bedroom house with three hundred year old six house. people as well because we had the. Oh no! Oh, yeah, six people for a period, so it was pretty, pretty jam packed. Um, but you know, even people right up to the highest of highs in the partner level, like half of them were living. You know, I wouldn't say it's country, but definitely more metropolitan London. It's not; they're not living in high rise places in Paddington or Mayfair or anything like that. Oh, it's probably still too expensive even at that level. But it definitely wasn't something that I ever thought about or high was rap. who wants to live in a high okay no i mean <laughs> sort of high end lying. sorry high end not high rise <laughs> high end <laughs> but it was less noticeable i agree less noticeable um okay so uni yeah <laughs> you okay so great because you got this internship mm-hmm. that's something i remember you saying that Something like that you looked around at EY or when you got the grad role and you were like, hang on, every single one of these people went to an inner city Melbourne private school and their dad's a partner or or there's some kind of connection. Um, Yeah, less when I was an intern, I didn't really notice or care about it as much at that point. I was kind of just pretty relieved to be through the door um, and whatever was to happen was to happen. But... Yeah, definitely when I came back as a graduate, um, I think I was in a, in the team that I was hired in uh, that was, I, from memory, is it 12, 15 grads, me being one of those. Um, and as I mentioned, I went to Aquinas College um, out in out in Ringwood, um, but 
I would say of the remainder, I'm struggling to remember anyone that was not from an inner city school, uh, a secondary school. Um, and it was pretty evident even beyond that, the people that had obviously been hired before I was, but it was, it was very noticeable that there was a common thread that the organization on the team that I was in was, you know, there were a lot of people from similar cliques, um, you know, that would know, I know their brother, or sorry, I wouldn't, but they would know someone's brother or they'd have a mutual friend in touch. And it was, you know, there was a lot of six degrees of separation between that group, whereas I was still very much, I think early on, on the outer. Um, it wasn't a problem for me. Like I've, I think I've got a pretty good personality and I'm able to gel with people really quickly. In fact, it probably almost gave me a little bit of a different side of things because it was a good, you know, I'd make a joke out of it a lot of the time that I was sort of that one um, to the side, but, yeah, I think that was an interesting realization that there definitely were not a lot of people, definitely not from where Aquinas, where I went, that were working in professional services. And even now, like when I go on LinkedIn, I kind of find it, I don't know whether humbling's the right word or like exciting when I'll see someone that wasn't even in my year, I'll be like, oh, you know, KPMG or something like that. I'll be like, it's cool to see other people getting involved because of my year level, there's not, there's definitely not one other person in big four um and i'd be struggling to think of any there wouldn't be any to be working in ib or anything like that or consultancy or things like Mm. that thing which is which is also probably why when i go and speak to them and i work at ey they've got no idea so yeah i think that was pretty pretty evident and pretty noticeable and yeah i think it was a bit of an eye-opening moment that there definitely are you know parts of Melbourne and probably cliques of Melbourne that do have the ability to get into certain jobs or networks. Um, and other people probably have to go, maybe not the hard way is the right way, right word, but um, it's a little bit different how you can get yourself into a position like that. Yeah. And it's interesting because this, so we're talking about like the private schools of inner Melbourne, because mm. inner city in the US is like means like poorer areas. But, oh, okay. Okay, so Apologies. But no, I said it, but okay. So we're talking about that, and but you still went to a Catholic school where yep. you pay a fee-paying school, yep. so it's not even like you. No. And that's crazy that there's that like yeah even that difference. Um, we did have yeah, and. A very good close friend of mine, Ron, um, he, we started together as grads, still very good friends today. He went to Melbourne High, which for everyone on the call is a non-fee-paying school, but it's a grammar entry. Sorry, on the podcast, (laughs) is a, is a, you know, selective entry school. So even, yeah, for the people that were, were not paying fees in school and everything like that, they were still going to, you know, selective institutions it wasn't interesting yeah I, I, I found that was quite um, yeah but so that must have made you feel like wow this is awesome I've got here on merit and yeah how, so how did you approach the interview in that first internship having like never heard of the companies were you then like okay this seems like this is the place to get a job like I'm hearing these are yeah. like a, this is something I should go for and then were you just like yeah, I'm interested account in accounting. Like you just gave it a shot. Yeah, I think um, you know, for anyone's gone through this process before, there are a number of interview hurdles, particularly the intern level. You do like a from memory, we, I did like either one or two into online tests. 
Then you have a group assessment where you come in. Part of that group assessment is a one-on-one interview. And then if you're fortunate enough to get a job after that, you obviously receive that um, that offer. Um, I think even getting, you know, I submitted online, got the online test. I would have said a, probably a good majority of my friends at uni got that, but definitely not a good majority got the assessment center. So, you know, it was already in my mind thinking, oh, wow, I'm clearly doing something right here. Um, and you do, you know, everyone wants to feel wanted. So it's almost that feeling of, oh yeah, like definitely should be going for this then if like, you know, so-and-so in my class hasn't got it and they desperately wanted it. And now I've kind of been given that opportunity. Um, I definitely felt that more and more as it kind of went along. But, you know, I still maintain that even when I went through the assessment center and the one-on-one interview, like I wasn't, I just wanted to be me. And, you know, I was pretty open about my personality and how I best operate. And, you know, fortunately enough, they liked what they heard and I was managed to get the job. Um, I know that like, you know, I went, I should have alluded to this before I started off in audit um, at EY, um, which sometimes does get a bad rap and then moves into a more transactions type role. Um, and I maintain that I thought it was a brilliant place to start my career. I thought it was incredible the people that I met. As I mentioned, Ron, my close friend of mine before, um, you know, he's doing some really important, oh, sorry, really impressive things. Um, he recently moved to Denver and moved back. And then I recently had a wedding for a friend as well that started as a graduate. You know, the relationships I built would definitely be the best thing that I took out of my time at EY. I think that can't be undersold. So get to bad rap or from my friends who were doing it in New York, it's basically like really intense hours in busy season. I mean, these guys, like the substances they were relying on kind of thing to get them through because it was like insane hours. Yeah. And then but then you're not paid the rewards of... So you might be doing the same hours as like investment banking, but you're not getting the bonus. And also you're not getting the same as other analysts within the yeah. firm. So That's right. Um, I can definitely say I wasn't on any substances. <laughs> getting through my busy season in case anyone is listening. But um, was, was it as ba- were the hours as bad here? As they were pretty saying? brutal, but I, I, I don't... Yeah, they were pretty brutal. Like I did well past midnight in busy season, depending on the client and the timeline. And Um, weekends. Yeah, I definitely did a few weekends. There were a couple of times coming into client offices to, you know, bash out a bash out a Saturday or something like that. Um, I would a bit more if it was going to be weekends. It was more working from home. Like if I needed to do something, I was going to do it from home. It was only if there was a specific need to be in. Um, oh yeah and then the traveling to clients that's the other thing yeah and then not necessarily getting like a hotel or whatever like management consultants get yeah I think um, I was fortunate in my time in audit that focusing on financial services clients a lot of them were located within this um, central business district in Melbourne so travel for me and if not then Sydney um travel for me was only ever going to really be interstate and it was going to be pretty local to the city but you're definitely right like some of the people that didn't work in financial services you know i hear stories of having to travel to cattle farms in tasmania and things like that because that was a client that they might have been working on and then they're living in you know sorry that they're the the closest hotel is not the most glamorous thing in the world but yeah i think it's um yeah it's an interesting experience but i really did enjoy as I said, the 
camaraderie that I had with the people that I started with and the relationships that I was able to take out of that period was was great. And it definitely did give me a lot of confidence when I moved to London, as I alluded to, um, that a place like EY was going to be, I think, at least similar to what I'd experienced in Melbourne. I'd heard, you know, from other colleagues as well that the London office in particular was quite similar to what I was uh, experiencing in Melbourne, which was good. So you were at that stage just like working away and saving? Yep. Yep. Still living at home, which Mm -hmm. is like the normal thing in Melbourne. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What was, yeah, so I I started work full time in 2015, uh, beginning of 2015. Um, and I probably stayed at home for about two years. Um, as I mentioned, living out in Ringwood with my parents and commuting into the city was probably looking at an hour, if not a little bit more door to door. Cause I used to have to drive from their house to the station, catch the train, then walk a bit. Not the end of the world. Um, but I am definitely an early bird. So sometimes I used to get in seven 7.30 to the office. So I'd be up at 5.30. So it was getting, becoming a little bit of a, taking a bit of a toll. Um, and then fortunate enough, my friend Ron, as I mentioned before, had a spare room opening up in Richmond for anyone that's not in Melbourne, which is sort of an inner city suburb. <laughs> <laughs> a nice inner city <laughs> suburb in Melbourne, which was a lot closer. And that was my first experience moving out of home. Um, so how did you think about that with the budgeting? Like, had you planned yes, for that? Yes. So the room that was on offer uh, at the time was going to be too expensive. Um, I factored all of this in because even by this stage, in the back of my mind, I knew I wanted to move to the UK and I wanted to make sure that I had put the right things in place and that I wasn't going to just be, you know, squandering all of my money uh, upon coming back, basically. Uh, sorry, once I go over there. So once I went over to Richmond, um, the room that they wanted me to move into was too expensive. I kind of negotiated a little bit. There was actually a... Com- and then subsequent to that, we rearranged how the house was and I ended up just taking the smaller room, which for me was fine. My place in with my mum and dad was really tough. It was quite small as well. I didn't have a problem living in the room that they moved me into, but it made me feel better because I was able to pay what I was comfortable with with the benefit of living a lot closer um, than I was currently living with my mum and dad so yeah it was definitely factored in huh so you were running the numbers (laughs) (laughs) maybe not running numbers but I had some rough estimates like as I said by this stage I was already I'd read barefoot and I think he's off the back of the hand like back of the envelope calc is like 30% of expenses should be like attributable to either a mortgage or a rent or something along those lines. Once again, don't quite be on something along those lines. Um, And I knew that if I was going to take the more expensive room, I probably could have swindled it. Like it would have been probably okay. We're not talking double or whatever, but you know, I think at the time I was like, I want to do this. It's going to make me feel more comfortable. Um, And also living in Richmond, I wanted to enjoy my weekends as well. I'm able to go out. Like I don't want to worked my whole week just so I'm paying my rent um so yeah I was definitely more cognizant of that and then it even became more prominent once I moved to the the UK like I was always very 
wary that I needed to make sure I was saving money even when other things were coming up like holidays as you mentioned before like we'd go away I'd make sure I always saved money each month coming in what were you saving for? Uh, there were a few things Um, I had a nice chunky hex bill Um, for anyone that doesn't know that's a a loan the government issues to university students here in Australia um, to obviously take up tuition interest free loan um, however, I was super unlucky right before I left, um, to come over. There was a change in legislation where that if you were earning worldwide income, which I was, and I didn't want to give up my Australian tax residency cause I was always planning on moving back. My income was accessible. So I knew, and here in Australia, usually what happens is your employer will just deduct that amount. I don't even see that amount, but obviously being in the UK, they're not privy to that. Um, so I, every month, not only was making sure that I had enough, you know, just for myself to live and a little bit to save and go on holidays. I also had to put money away because I knew I was going to get this whopping tax bill at the end of the year. Um, oh, so diligent. Whereas <laughs> me, one day, we, we, me and Georgina in Mykonos, I wake up and just have a bill for nine grand. Yeah. My tax <laughs> um, but I knew it was coming... Things like that, I was pretty across. Um, Cause uh, yeah, I didn't want that to happen to me. <laughs> Sorry, I didn't pass me advice. <laughs> so would you sit down, like what was the system? When would you sit down and think about these things? Um, I usually tried to take a lot of thinking out of it regularly. Everything was pretty automated as well. And that was a big thing that, you know, I already implemented back in Australia. Like money would come in, I can't remember when, let's say the first of the month, it would immediately be dispersed into, you know, account here that would be for expenses, account here for savings, account here for, you know, paying that tax bill, things like that. So I kind of immediately straight away, and it gives me a lot more comfort when I go into my online bank on my phone or on my computer, that there's a number there that I know that is an amount I can spend. Everything else has been taken out of it. It's stored away somewhere and I'm not sitting there thinking, oh, I can't have an extra extra beer or something like that because I haven't planned and structured all that stuff in that particular way. So I think what will be interesting is when I eventually do get the property, because that I think will almost put it on steroids because obviously you have things like offset accounts and managing your money in that way. I think that'll be an interesting, um, and even we've, I've spoken to. How does that work? So an offset account essentially is, say you've got a mortgage of a million dollars and interest charges on a million. What banks offer, I'm not sure if it's a global product or just an Australian one, but the offset account essentially is, let's say you have $200,000 sitting in the offset the way the bank will then look at it and say is, okay, there's a million dollar mortgage, less $200,000, $800,000 is your mortgage actually. And that's what we'll charge you on the interest. So it's a bit of a cash management technique, if anything else. So you can basically be paying to your get mortgage. to bank with you. Kind of, yeah. You can be paying your mortgage, but you're not actually paying because the $200,000 is still there. You can go and you know do whatever you want with it. It's accessible cash. Um, and that's the sort of stuff I've gotten right into. I know TikTok something that I, like, I even now follow, which is pretty nerdy, but like you got um, financial planners and advisors across Australia that like do videos and little things like that. I find it super interesting hearing, 
you know, particular example of person A has come in and it could be a relative has passed away and they've been inherited this or how do I structure a family trust and things along those lines. Stuff that I'm not over overly um, across, but it's interesting to hear that stuff. I quite like. And little things like tax minimization and things like that. I'm not saying I'm dodging tax, but it's good to it's good to um, understand the options that are out there, I think. I don't know, I find I get a kick out of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Backing up to where did yeah, the decision to um <laughs> no this is I get dad told me feed, feedback he's yeah. like you just jump all over the place like, <laughs> people need to follow the storyline mm-hmm. um how you talked about your fam but you know moving overseas that being a big deal yeah where did that idea come from you just saw okay I'm at a global company cool why don't I yeah, I think it came, there was a few things that came to pass at once. So that was definitely one, being at a global company that afforded those opportunities. Um, and it's a selling point as well. When you come in as a graduate, that's like the first thing that they dangle in front of you is that we have international opportunities. You will be able to go and work in London, New York, Munich, wherever you want. So that was already in back on. I was like, that's so cool. I don't, And I didn't go, my first overseas trip was in either year 10 or year 11, being from a Catholic secondary school, I was chosen as the student rep to go to Rome when Mary McKillop was canonized as a saint. Um, and I was like, wow, this is crazy. Like, you know, things you see in movies like Colosseum, Vatican, all that stuff. I was like, this is incredible. Like, just don't really get to see any of that stuff. Um, so in the back of my mind, even from that age, I was like, yeah, I, I want to go traveling. Moving was not at that point, but I liked, I was like, traveling is really cool. It was good fun. Um, so yeah, at EY, getting those opportunities. Um, and then I think seeing people go and do that, you know, people that I've worked with that would resign or either transfer or whatever it was, um, going over, having a really good time. Um, at the time as well, I really was entertaining leaving EY, going over and doing contract accounting work, which to keep that brief, you know, go over, I have a qualification, I can go and work for various companies in the UK and being a contractor, you get paid quite quite a considerable What are the rates rate. again? Uh, I think it was like 500 I think, I think like people were earning like 500 pounds a day. Is that right? 500 <laughs> times five, two and a half. Yeah, it was quite a bit. Like they were earning quite, but once again, you got, that's pre-tax, pre-any pension, all that stuff. So you don't get leave. You don't, don't get leave or anything. Like if you do take leave, you don't get paid, like stuff like that. But still, it, it definitely balances out getting paid more. So the, in my mind, I feel it was like, like it was like three, 270. <laughs> I don't know. You can look into that and come back and check the facts. But that was definitely something that I was entertaining at the time because I was like, wow, I can go over there, live my best life, go traveling, get paid heaps, be living in the UK. It's all going to be so much fun. Um, but where I wanted to go in my career, it just wasn't right for me at that time. I didn't want to go down necessarily the sort of in-house accounting path that a lot of people choose. So I made the decision to go to, to, to EY, which probably was less lucrative, but 
I maintained that it was the right decision for me at the time. I, I really enjoyed having the support of a business that I knew from Melbourne. I knew how to do everything on the systems and everything like that. Plus, I also had people that I could still speak to from Melbourne, you know, directly through the systems and stuff. So, um, And you're progressing your career. I mean... That's right. Being freelance or being a contract, that, there's a lot of perks from jobs that people yeah. don't... Re- that I've now realized like going out on my own it's like wow you don't yeah. get like an office yeah. like, or if you're contracting yeah sure you're in an office but it's like a temporary thing you're yeah. there for a few weeks it's not you don't get the community of the no. people around you you don't get like the mentoring all these other things yeah that are really good about jobs i was reading a yeah a post today uh a former colleague of mine from ey in melbourne he recently founded a sort of a social, uh, I wouldn't say it's sort of a social network type app, but it, it works around connecting people and bringing people together. So it's, it's more, you know, we've all gone into this social network. It's kind of like bringing it back. But he did, the post he was saying today was things that he, you know, misses about live, working in a big corporation. I think one of the ones that I hadn't really thought of because it's not something I've done, but is you are alone in your own thoughts a lot of the time because it's not easy to just go up to the next person's desk and say, hey, what do you think about this? Because you're you're the founder, you're working on your own a lot of that time in that sort of early stage company. Um, and that was something I was like really, it sort of hit with me even just today. Was, that is something that EY definitely had, my current employer has. I think, you know, obviously what you're doing, it would, sometimes I'd be like, I'd get lonely. <laughs> I need yeah. that. And you have to motivate yourself yeah. So I was, yeah, but it's also stuff like you don't think about, it's like, oh, I have to provide a laptop. Like yeah. I have to buy Microsoft myself. Yeah. Like, I have to do my tax, like yeah. the taxes. It's like, I have to figure out how much I owe the government. Yeah. And like, if I don't pay them, then I'm like committing tax fraud. But like, no one's telling you, no one's yeah. like knocking on your door to pay your taxes. Like you have, I mean, I know you that. You take that stuff thing. for granted a bit. Yeah. It's not like, you, ever, anyone yeah, yeah, that's yeah. In, that, in that environment. Yeah. And then the community. Yeah, because I was sitting in WeWork. Actually, so weird. A guy started talking to me in WeWork mm. in, like, London, Victoria one. And that's who I just met now. He's oh, now, really? He's also working out. It was so weird. But anyway, I met... you. <laughs> I met, like, two... Like, it's not that... It's not... I don't know. People, like, glamorize this thing of, like... Yeah. Working for yourself. And it's, like, actually not necessarily that glamorous. Well, I think a lot of people see the end result, which is, you know, these founders that have absolutely struck gold and, you know, are millionaires and billionaires. And, but there are periods, as we were just discussing at the start, when it's not like that at all. It's, it's, you know, it's going from that zero to one, as they say. It's difficult to make that jump. I think that probably the starting point's the hardest part. But yeah, it's, it's an interesting environment. But yeah, you are completely right. Like it, it's you would, and I do probably half the time take that stuff for granted that I can pick up the phone and call IT. I yeah. forgot my password. <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> yeah. Pros and cons to both. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so you did you go traveling on your own between going to Rome and moving to the UK? No. So I definitely traveled more, but didn't travel. So went to Rome in whatever year it was, 10 or 11. Um, and then I 
went to Europe with my then girlfriend. We did a two or three week trip. Uh, that was the first time I went to London. Uh, immediately loved it. Thought it was an incredible spot to be. Um, I really enjoyed the fact that everyone spoke English. Um, I thought that was a really big tick. Um, and I, even at that point, I was like, oh yeah, like this is actually somewhere I would really, I really liked the environment. I thought it was amazing being in this hub. So that was kind of already then started festering away in my mind. Um, so I did a trip then. And then I also went to uh, Southeast Asia a couple of times with, with the boys. Yes, once or twice. Right. So, but it was like a big thing to your family. Like they were like, why are you moving? Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like mum in particular. Uh, yeah, I think she was a bit worried. She was obviously worried uh, for, for myself moving overseas with, as I said, no job, no home, uh, no real support network. Like I, I had a couple of old colleagues over there. Um, so I kind of went from nothing, from a, sorry, from a full life to something that was going to be completely different. I'm going to have to sort of start it from scratch. Um, and cause you broke up with your girlfriend, right? Before yeah. Oh, uh, probably a few months, but yeah, pretty much like moved and then was going, yeah, pretty much from something very stable and secure in my life to something completely different. Um, but I think what mum and dad were probably a little bit, uh, definitely before I left were, you know, you've done all this saving, like, shouldn't you be buying a home and going down that path, which, you know, a lot of people do do, um, but that wasn't for me at the time. I do want to do that now. That's something I'm working towards as a goal. But at that point, I was early 20s, wanted to go live my life, have a great time, experience a different culture um, or different cultures. Um, and I'm really glad I made the decision. But at the time, I think mum and dad were a little bit, I think, um, probably worried is the right word and whether I was making the right decision with my life. Um, but you know, I think once I got over there and then they came and visited once and when, even when I came home, you know, they were incredibly excited to hear the stories that I had and the places that I'd gone and visited and, you know, places like Morocco and Israel and my mum, you know, I think the furthest she's traveled is to the Cook Islands. Like it's a complete different lens we both had. I spent three and a half weeks in Russia. Like it's, it's a lot of different places that not many people ever will get to go to. Lithuania. <laughs> <laughs> In rogue parts of Russia as well. Yeah, pretty out there spots. Um, Are you still mates with that girl? Uh, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not friends with anyone from Russia anymore. Don't um, know if they'd be allowed to. Because World Cup. Yeah. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's right. Um, I don't remember your parents visiting. Yeah, they came. Um, I don't think you met them, though. They came. Uh, Where was I? In the office. September of one year, I think they came around my mum's birthday. And so what? So the rationale of quitting without a job, you were like, "I'm going to make this happen. I'll get a job over there." Yeah. And if it's not with EY, it'll be with someone else. Like you just back to yourself. Yeah, that's exactly. Oh, and because right. you wanted to move out of order at yes. the same time. Yeah. So a lot. As you said, lots were happening. Broke up with a girlfriend. Wanted to move overseas. Wanted to change the type of work I was doing. Um, Lots was going on at and the time. what was driving moving out of order? Uh, I think 
it, it wasn't right for me. Um, I think I had a good skill set for it. Audit is, I think even as I was mentioning at the start of this, there are elements of audit that I lent heavily on from even my part-time jobs working in grocery. Cause like as many, anyone who's ever been audited before, you're not exactly wanting to speak to the auditor. No one is keen to get in there and speak to them. So I had to develop quite quickly a skill set to be able to build rapport with people and then subsequently get them to you know, trust me, but you know, work together towards what we needed to do to get things done. And I think I have a good skill set to do that. I think I'm good at finding that mutual connection or that, that point between two people where we can feel comfortable enough to work through it. Because a lot of people I think still, when an auditor sits down with them, are worried that that person's reporting on them as a person and that they might be losing their role. Um, and that's probably a lack of awareness is what the auditor does, but I didn't want to do that forever. Cause audit is basically, so you auditing banks, it's like a big bank. They have to do financial reporting every year. So we see what the profit and loss is, etc. These are public companies. Yeah. And so the shareholder, needs to know that and where all the shareholders because we have pension money and pension funds are invested in these companies that's correct um and you're going in to say is what you've reported actually matching up it's like signing off that it's legit and it's not it's an independent review to put it at the very highest level yeah like an independent check that as Delia said an independent check that what's been presented is um, reasonable and accurate. There's never, an, we're not going to go into the details of audit here, but there's never an assurance that everything is 100% correct, but it's no, reasonable and all fair. the scandals. Yeah. Um, so I didn't want to do that. <laughs> I didn't want to do that forever. Um, there's a very established path in audit from, you know, coming in as a graduate all the way up to partner. Um, it, and as there are in all the, the lines that, big four accounting firms, but it wasn't, it wasn't the kind of work that I wanted to be doing. I wanted to try something a little bit more towards finance. And as I said, I did an accounting and finance major. So I wanted to move a little bit more into that stream. Um, so yeah, I was fortunate enough that EY hired, hired me in sort of their transactions consulting practice. And I was able to pivot across um, quite, quite nicely and quite easily into the UK team. So. Yeah, I think I just wanted to change an environment, change in the type of work. And I wanted to just become a bit more rounded and skilled in different areas. And I think, you know, as I said before, I think big four accounting firms are great areas to develop a lot of different skills, depending on who you work with. And then what's been the driver for the more recent move? Um, Yeah, I think it's probably been a bit of a long-term plan. So I always wanted to move out I was never going to stay in consulting my entire life. I wanted to go and do more of an investment. I think at that point it was either, you know, investment or more M&A advisory. So investment banking or something along those lines. Having the experience that I had at EY working in transactions, we worked quite closely with M&A advisors. I, you know, wasn't for me the, the type of work um, that they were doing. I found it a lot more interesting working in the investment space. Um, what I was working, what the type of investment I was working on, that was the big unknown question. I think I might've even spoken to you about this a while back was there's so many different asset classes um, 
investments in shares, investments in real estate, infrastructure, all different kinds. Um, that was kind of where I needed to work out where I wanted to be um, and the experience that I kind of wanted to get. Um, but I think it was really above all of that as well was I needed to be in, and this is still forever will be that, I want to be in an organization and a company that has a great name, whether that doesn't have to be like a global name, just like a respected name, really you want to do business and you want to work with those companies, which um, Max Cap, my current employer, definitely has in the market. Great. And what, can you just explain what you do now? Yeah. So Max Cap uh, is a commercial real estate fund manager. So what we do is um, we lend money to property developers across Australia and New Zealand um, that develop a whole range of different kinds of assets, whether that be um, residential, as in apartments, it could be office buildings, accommodation, you know, that's ranging from hotel service apartments, student accommodation, all kinds of different commercial real estate. We lend money to those developers to be able to get those projects off the ground. And the money that we lend is on behalf of um, private investors uh, and pension funds and institutionals as well. So my role at the company is I kind of sit a little bit between the two. Um, I sit in the portfolio or funds management arm of the business where essentially we're responsible for if a particular development comes across, um, you know, is there a, a portfolio or a, um, a fund that we manage that that would be appropriate for those investors? So, you know, if there's an, a, a multi-story residential apartment going up in South Yarra, suburb of Melbourne, you know, who is the right investor for that financing to be occurred? We're not, we might not give it to a particular mandate or such just because they might be overexposed or things along those lines. So I'm, I work in kind of the portfolio construction slash funds management um, part of MaxCap. So it's really exciting. You know, I think Australia as a whole is a very real estate focused um, economy, um, whether that's people buying homes, developments, flipping homes, it's a big thing here in Australia. So it's kind of exciting to be involved in an industry where you know you get to see the market and how it's evolving, at least from, from one aspect. Um, yeah, that's what I do now. And I think the thing that, so people always think when you say, I don't know if you've noticed this, when you say anything with the word investment, yeah. people think, oh, that's rich people yeah. doing stuff. And it's like, yeah, no, <laughs> not quite. Yeah, it's not. It's, it's, you know, we have a pretty wide base of investors that come in and invest, <laughs> um, you know, as, as you alluded to before, and as I mentioned institutional investors and when I say that I mean pension funds and we all have money in pension funds so like legally legally we have to put the money in and they're legally required as a an institutional investor they have a fiduciary duty to invest that money on behalf of all of us where our superannuation goes or our pension goes um, and a key component of that is making sure that you've got portfolio diversification they can't which I think is, to your point as well, I think when a lot of people think of investments, they think of shares. I think the best part about that is that, you know, when you do put, when you do get paid your super, 
you know, there might be an amount that's going into other asset classes that they might not be with private equity, commercial real estate debt, things along those lines. Um, so yeah, we, we do, we invest across a whole array of different kinds of investors, whether they know it or not. We potentially do have money in our funds that we would be managing on behalf of them. Mm. And yeah, so they're trying to get a good return for us. Yeah. It's literally like... The mandate. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like their job is to make sure we have money in our retirement. That's how the system works. Correct. That's exactly right. Um, okay, do you want to do the last three questions? Yeah, hit me with them. Unless there's anything else to add? No, I don't think so. I've probably rambled a little bit. So enjoy everyone that's listening, <laughs> trying to piece my thoughts together. But um, no, it's been good to be on. I'm happy to hear the last three questions. Wait, one thing I was just going to ask yeah, yeah. is with the budgeting thing, Yeah. How? what's your mindset when you're like, okay, this is my spending account and yeah. then it's at the end of the month and you're like, I've spent it. Yeah. Are you just super strict? Like, no, I can't, no beers for me, like, or whatever. Or you I've never buy- gotten to that. So that's the first answer to that. Um, I'm usually pretty, pretty good in... What? So you save out of the spending account? At the end of the month, usually, yeah. Wow. I definitely will be this month. <laughs> um, so I actually bought Australian Open tickets before because I was like, I've got the, <laughs> I can do it. Like I've got the money sitting there. Wow. So it's kind of like you're treating yourself at the end of the month. It's well, like, yeah, because cool. I've like I've apportioned it already. Like it's, it's like whatever's left over, I'll roll into the savings to be in a month and we'll start again. But if I've got it, and I, I really enjoy the tennis and it's here, so I was like, I might as well go along so my girlfriend and I going next Tuesday will be good fun but yeah like I'm, I've never at least not in recent memory yeah well a good example of that first month when we lived in the UK I had to pay the bond and the first month rent and I hadn't started working yet I had to get my tax return from the UK from the Australia I had to submit it in like a cafe to get I don't know let's say 1200 bucks in to pay that whatever it was the rent and then I basically had like next to nothing for the entire month. And I was eating home brand pasta and tomato sauce for like the whole month. You might not remember, but Rosie, who was one of our other housemates was like, do you need some money? And I was like, it's all right. Like I'll get through. I was making like bulk, bulk things. Um, And yeah. And then as soon as payday came around back on easy street. (laughs) Wow. So you were just disciplined. Yeah, discipline, but also at that point, I'd, I'd probably over had overexerted myself on the holiday. Like I'd probably spent more than I estimated on the holiday, but that meant like I was, you know, there had to be a final point. I wasn't going to just keep going, you know, get a credit card and keep going. I was like, no, this is, I've dug myself into this hole and I'll get myself out of it. I don't want to borrow money, even if it's from like mum and dad. At some point, I remember in that month, I was pretty close to just being like, can you give me like a couple hundred bucks? And then I'll pay you back once payday comes around. But I managed to get through. <laughs> so you submitted that your tax return early to get money? Not early, but I submitted it, you know, like, let's say 1 July. You know, like the day after the financial year end. I was like, I'm on there, like trying to get it through as quickly as possible so that I can get the money into the account so that I would have enough to be able to pay the first month's rent and the bond. I remember my um, colleague from EY in the US said to me, once like he never understood why people celebrate getting a tax return because yeah. it's like you have lent the government your yeah. money 
interest free. Yeah. Like <laughs> they've earned interest on it. <laughs> yeah. But it's just not the case of it's it's yeah, completely that I was so that was probably the closest I got to that situation. But usually I'm pretty pretty good nowadays. In fact what I usually do is what I will do, particularly if we get earlier in the month, is whatever I've put aside, I usually divide it by the number of days until the next pay. So I know how much I technically could spend each day till the next pay. Let's say, I just hypothetical numbers. Let's say I have $3,000 in the account and there's 30 days till the next pay. I've got, what's that? Off the top of the head, $300? $30 a day, just off the top of the head, just like that. No. A hundred. hundred. Sorry. <laughs> you being like, I'm so good at maths. A um, hundred. And what I'll do is basically that calculation will roll every day. Well, not every day, but I'll check it every few days. And if I haven't spent the hundred, obviously the next day it'll be higher than what it was the previous day. So like if I've got, what's the date today? The 10th, get paid mid-month. That calculation now will be quite a bit higher. Because it's I've got it's it's a bit flawed, but it gives me a good of a yardstick to work out. Oh, I've I've overexerted myself, or I've got this much to play with. Do you buy your lunch or your like? Yeah, I do buy my lunch. I but do buy my lunch. You just feel in control because you you know. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I'm usually pretty pretty okay with it. Um, uh, so now I'm just remembering when I in the US you're usually paid um, every fortnight. Yeah. Even though that's not a word they use, or whatever they say, yeah, bi-weekly. Bi- um, yeah. <laughs> which is just confusing. Um, and one, yeah, talking about how much rent you pay. So one yeah. of my paychecks would go to pay rent. Yeah. Because it was like you would spend half your salary on rent. But yeah, it even, And it would progress. Like I remember talking to my senior manager or even a partner being like, yeah, paycheck to paycheck. It's like literally yeah. as you go up your lifestyle just... Because that's the whole thing, yeah. Like like I said before, like they don't want to be living in Tottenham. Like, they want to be living in where they're living in. Like if they lived in Tottenham, like, they wouldn't be living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah. Well, like they don't want to... But it's like this whole idea of... It, it's the well, bubble no, that we well, live Lond- in. London was more like a third was normal. Which yeah. I feel like might be here. But oh, sorry, you mean New York. New York. Oh, yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, no, London, people don't live like that. No. But that's what I mean. There's less of the pressure of yeah. where you live. You know, the re- the scene. New York's such a scene. Yeah. So London doesn't have a scene. Like, yeah. people don't... Like, <laughs> um, so, yeah, that kind of gives me a little bit of a yardstick through the month as to where I'm kind of at. And then at the beginning of the month, it'll all start all over again. Just kind of just refreshes... So, yeah, it kind of gives me a little bit more control and I can feel comfortable, you know. And I think I feel better as the month progresses and I'm seeing that flawed figure that I calculate get higher and higher because now I'm like, well, now I can go and do whatever I need to do because, like, I've got... So, and then if you have a big purchase to make, you'll wait for, like, later in the month or something? Yeah, usually... Yeah, 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 usually I will. Or I'm usually, or I can do it whenever, and then I just know that I will need to tone it down. Kind of, yeah, tone it down. Or so, I already know that it'll probably balance out based on sort of the history of the months anyway. Like yeah. I'm not going to get to a position where I'm like I've got nothing left. Yeah. So in London, were you like at zero, or it was like 
no, you have your savings, but you're like, I will not touch my savings. Uh, that. And my savings were in Australia as well. So I used to use, what was the app called? TransferWise. TransferWise. So I usually transfer. Yeah, just known as Wise. Wise. Okay. <laughs> I used to transfer each month to Wise. Also, because I didn't want to get stung. Um, cause I knew I had this tax bill first and foremost, but I kind of used that averaging out of the FX rate as well. Like if I'd move the money in 12 monthly installments versus one month in June, I could get absolutely hammered on the FX rate. So each month I would move money to the transfer wise over to my ING account. And then subsequently would be my savings slash emergency fund. So Monzo oh, was you just... would move money from the UK yeah, every back month. to Australia. Every month. Whoa. Yeah, the transfer was. You were that disciplined. Yeah. Like my savings will sit in another country. Another country. So I don't touch them. Well, Monzo at the time as well didn't have... I think they've expanded a bit more. I remember working on them and they were... The savings offerings of the pots or whatever they used to oh, call them were not... Nothing. No. Nah, nothing. And there were a lot of restrictions around you know moving money in and out of it and if you move money out of it you all of a sudden went back down to the base rate which was like 0.01 you know i wasn't i wasn't keen on doing any of that stuff so i was kind of i'm going to move it to australia let it sit where it needs to sit and i'm in a term deposit no i was just i probably should have done something like that but it was usually just in a what was considered a high high interest savings account which would not have been much wow okay Mm. there you go Okay, last three questions. Yeah. Is there a practice you do to stay grounded? Um, I guess we haven't really talked about any mental... But did you... Did that wear you down mentally when you're doing the audit stuff? Or you kind of just managed to stick through it? Yeah, I don't think it wore me down mentally. Um, I used to get, obviously, mentally fatigued, I reckon. Yeah. Um... But I always was pretty up and about, you know, I don't think it took a, a toll on me or anything like that. Um, but to stay grounded, I don't know. I like to do, I, I still really enjoy doing things and I don't even know if this is the right answer, but like going out for lunch with just me and mum or my mum and my nana and things like that to hear stories, you know, just about things outside of the four walls of work or my normal, you know, what I would speak about from Monday to Friday. It's nice to sit down with, with them and just have a more down to earth discussion, I think can be, can be really nice. And, you know, it's even probably more recently, like some of my, like my friend James, who's just had his second child. It's like really, really exciting to go out and see that sort of stuff and just be around that environment. It makes me feel a little bit, uh, I don't know whether distance is the right word, but away from, the sometimes the hysteria you can get in at work when you think this is so all-encompassing i can't leave until this is finished and then on saturday morning you go and see james's like daughter that was born a couple of days ago like well that's so much more important than what you know what i was thinking about on thursday night when i was trying to get this work done i think that stuff helps put things into perspective for me and i'm always a big believer as well in that you know um I, i i regularly find myself using that mentality when I get hyped up around, you know, no one is going to die over what we are doing. It's important, but this is not a, an emergency room at a hospital or something along those lines. We, we do need to put some things into perspective. I find as well. 
And I try to be like that. Definitely when there's juniors that answer into me as well, I, I don't want them to feel that I'm all over the place and subsequently that festers, I think, into other people. So mm. I don't know that answers the question, but it's definitely something I try to do is, is put things into perspective in that mm-hmm. way. I just realised we didn't even talk about you teaching yourself how to cook as like a 10-year-old. And oh, yeah. <laughs> vigorous diet. Yeah, we didn't even go across that. Because of physical transformation I had. <laughs> Because I, th- I think the grounded question is usually about like mental health, but yeah. I guess you're covered in terms of you're like very good at eating well, look, exercising. like. Yeah, usually well, I try at least. Um, yeah, I think if we do flash back to, yeah, growing up probably wasn't very healthy. Used to eat a lot of junk food, drink a lot of soft drink, not great. Um, and then probably from yeah middle of secondary school really wasn't really liking how I looked how it made me feel I played a lot of sport at that age despite being quite overweight and it was just really difficult for me to do anything you know well so I kind of was like I need to get myself sorted started eating a lot healthier whether that was cooking my own meals or changing how I was eating, cut out soft drink. Yeah. And then I think, I think that is always going to be at the back of my mind that if I did go back to how I was eating as anyone would, I would be in a really bad spot. So it kind of is like a self-fulfilling. I know when I'm eating something that I either, not that I shouldn't be eating it, but I know that it might be something like it's a treat. I don't know, something like that rather than, you know, drinking five, six glasses of lemonade a day, which I'm sometimes doing. (laughs) So yeah, I think that's that's I think that's also probably put given me that mental strength, if you want to put it that way, that probably does feed into other parts of my life. So even when you're working till midnight, you can remember like, okay, look after your body and Yeah, or I know that I'm gonna need to do something the next day because I might have missed something. Like you know, I was planning on going for a run, something's happened, I can't go do that. I need to either get up the next morning to cater for that, or I'm gonna need to do something the next night. Something along those lines. It's kind of that is an important part. I really like going on walks, like um, just to listen to music as well uh, by myself. I think that gives me a great, puts me in a good headspace. I really like doing that. I used to do that in the UK a lot. Um, just to walk around the streets and yeah it's kind of like one of those things you let the imagination run wild and you're sort of in your own world a little bit and you kind of you're not speaking to anyone it's, it's, I, I, I really like doing that I, yeah I went for like a 10k walk on Saturday or Sunday or something for a few hours just kind of or an hour and just like did exactly that puts me in a good space I think nice and Bronte respects yeah definitely I think well I've I've invited her along. She comes sometimes, but I think she knows that I like to go and do that as well and have my own off to the side time, which is good. Okay. Is which book has had the biggest impact on your life? Oh, I think it well, probably is that barefoot book. <laughs> We've spoken about that at length. Um, yeah, I think that was particularly powerful. Like I said, I've read a heap of those finance books and amongst heaps of other books, like fiction, nonfiction, um, but I really liked how that was written and how practical that was for all kinds of different people. Like my brother works in a completely different industry. I think he may have even read it now and he kind of appreciates that these are the sort of things you need to be doing, which I really like. He's not going to pick up a Peter Lynch, you know, 
one up on Wall Street book, which goes very specific into investment. Like that's just not going to be happening. But this is coming from a different lens, and I think it's important. I think it's important people are a little bit more cognizant of how they spend their money, how they save their money, uh, and how that can compound over time. Probably not enough done in schools for that, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, and I think just how the system works. Yeah. Like, it, because we're all part of the system. Oh, 100%. The system, obviously there's a lot of things wrong with the system, but the system is kind of designed to look after us. So yeah, it's, it's like people don't have a, have awareness at yeah. all of like even, you know, and it's like you're giving your pay away every month. Yeah. And people don't <laughs> know what's happening to it, but it's like... Yeah. Like there's some horror, like even... Um, a uh, good friend of mine, Darcy, who Delia knows, his partner or his ex-partner, she used to, I remember him telling me that something along the lines of money would come in, that would clear the overdraft, which for anyone that doesn't understand that is when you spend beyond the balance. So say negative a thousand, the money would come in, take it up to zero, and then the month ahead would spend it back down to negative a thousand. So the pay was coming in to basically clear a debt each month. So obviously not saving any money like that. You can't, but, that's and, not a, and an overdraft isn't a good because you usually are getting like daily charges on that. Yeah, I think you like, are, and I don't think it bodes well for your credit score either. Like I think consistently being in overdraft is not overly great for the credit score. I could be wrong there, but yeah. Anyway, like things like that, like that gives me as a person, that gives me a lot of stress. Someone else doing that. Um, but anyway, everyone lives their life. But I think, like they said, books like The Barefoot Investor chat through things like that and give a good appreciation as to why this is important and how you can just make simple changes. It's not like I need to then start a, you know, a share brokerage account and go into all this stuff. It's chat, you know, shop around for a high interest savings account rather than just accepting that this is what I have to put my money in because my family's banked with the Commonwealth Bank their entire life or something like that. Mm. Yeah, a lot of psychology with it. Yeah. I mean, no, I was like that with Combank because I, being overseas and whatever, you had to deposit a certain amount, otherwise you're getting fees. Yeah. And I went into them and I was like, I've banked with you for 20 years. Yeah. Like, I want to stay. Can you remove the fees? And they're like, no. And yeah. I was so sad to move <laughs> banks, but it's like stupid to have loyalty to Yeah. Because it's always been like that. Like my parents and I growing up was always Commonwealth Bank. I think most people probably in Australia from a retail perspective were. Um, Dolomites. That's yeah. That's in schools. But, and that's, for, yeah. And that for anyone that has read The Barefoot Investor is something he was particularly critical of because Dolomites gets people or children to sign up from a super early age, but then it has a lot of data around, you know, when you turn 18. And then when you turn 18, bang, in the mail comes your you know, would you be interested in getting a credit card? And then, you know, people start spending money beyond their means just because they haven't had that. It, it, it was one of those things that, you know, came off as this really exciting and great for children, but it wasn't really teaching them the system at all. It was kind of, you know, farming customers from a really early age. There's a bit more regulation around that, I believe now, but, you know, at the time, everyone was kind of doing it. I was in Dolomites as well, so. <laughs> okay, last question. What are the three words that describe the best version of you um or the version you want to turn up as every day yeah uh, i think patient is a big one 
do I have to describe them or just the words? Just Patient, um, energetic, and I guess happy is the right word for me. You know, I think, I think those, if I'm in that headspace, I think it's, I'm in a good spot and I think other people can feel it as well. That's, I, I, yeah, I'll go with those three. Great. There we go. <laughs> Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Delia. It's been a pleasure.